You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Let's pray. Father, you tell us in your word, in fact, you command us to behold the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. There is no other one to look to, as Rochelle said. There is no one else that we can find, no one else you say and point to. It's only your son, Jesus. We behold him, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. So, Father, we pray as we look into your word, we pray that we would us too. So, Father, we pray that you would do this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we have been going through, as a church, a sermon series on searching for a king. And a king that God had promised a long time ago, a a king that God promised he would send. And we have been searching through the scriptures for this kind of a king, a king that would do everything we would hope a king would do, a king that would be everything we would hope a king would be, because deep down inside all of us, we're actually longing and searching for a king, and we've been on this search using God's words, searching for this kind of a king, so if you, if you have a Bible with you, that's great. You can flip it open to the book of John in the New Testament. If you don't, that's no problem at all. We have ushers handing out Bibles right now. And just raise your hand. If you don't have a Bible, they're going to put one in your hand. If you don't own a Bible, you get to keep that. We're going to be in John 17. And I don't know if you've ever wondered this, but... If God were actually to send this king, this long-awaited king that he had promised, this king that he had promised to send, and he actually came, would you recognize him? Would you be able to identify him in some way? If you could, would you celebrate him? Would you follow him as a king? Or would you kind of ignore him? Or mistaken him for someone else. Or kind of see him for who he is but avoid him. Or just outright reject him. Or even get rid of him because he's kind of cramping your style or getting in your way. Have you ever wondered what you would do if you actually met the king God was going to send? Well, we're going to fast forward here. Many years to the New Testament in the book of John, in the chapter of 18. John 18, we're going to be introduced to three different kinds of people. All of them types of of rulers who had authority. The first ruler that we're going to look at represented one of the greatest, most powerful empires in the world. Rome. And that person was a governor named Pontius Pilate. We're going to hear about another group of rulers called the the chief priests. Or these these Jewish leaders, this religious order 
that brought leadership to the nation of Israel. We're going to hear about them. And then there's this third ruler, an apparent nobody from Nazareth, who a lot of people didn't even see as a ruler. He's known as Jesus. And we pick up the story here, this true event, this historical event and conversation, early one morning, when these three parties have come together to really figure out who this Jesus is. And specifically, what kind of a king does he claim to be? So why don't we read this whole section. We're going to start in chapter 18, verse 33, to halfway through 19, to, to look at this conversation that goes back and forth to figure out who is this Jesus? What kind of a king is he? So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, Oh, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? And after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And when the chief priests and the officials saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered, We have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. 
And he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. And so Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not, a, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement. In Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. And so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with two others one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. And so the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. But Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. You know, sometimes things aren't always what they appear to be initially. You know, someone can be driving a really old car, but he's a billionaire. Or someone who's really, really quiet and shy can just sing like an angel. And here, in the case of Jesus, it, it appears as though he's on the, on the losing end of a kangaroo cord, of this kind of a circus of justice, where he is just completely, unfairly tried and condemned. He seems to be outmaneuvered, overpowered by a couple of other people, couple of other parties who, who seem to have outforced Jesus, these chief priests of the Jews and Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. He appears weak. He appears powerless. And yet nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus is in complete control the whole time. In fact, just before this passage that we read in John 18, verse 32, it says, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show what kind of death he was going 
to die. Jesus is in absolute control of everything that's going to happen here on Good Friday. Every little detail, every unfolding of every event. He is upholding all things by the word of his power. He is carrying out everything according to his perfect will. He is unfolding history exactly the way he planned it. And yet he is humbly using all of his power to lay his life down as a king, sacrificing himself for his citizens. And it was his decision to do so. It was his choice. No one forced him. No one coerced him or twisted his arm. He chose to. He wanted to. It says in John 18, chapter 10, verse 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to raise it up again. Jesus is in complete control of everything that happens to his life and everyone else's, including yours and mine. Even though Jesus here, he's surrounded by Pilate and chief priests and some pretty big wigs, he's really the only king present. He's the only one that has all power and authority. And Pilate quickly learns that this is no ordinary king. That Jesus is in fact the true king of heaven. He is the true king of heaven. The, the, the Jewish leaders and chief priests had actually arrested Jesus the night before. And had kept, up, kept him up all night trying him and testing him. And then it brought him to Pilate that morning, charging him with treason, claiming to be a king. And now typically in Rome, that was not a really good charge to be charged with. Uh, Caesar wasn't really big on having rival kings. And so to be charged with treason was a serious crime, punishable of death. And so when Pilate comes and hears this, he questions Jesus pretty strictly. And Jesus clarifies in verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting so that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Jesus, is, he's admitting here he's a king. But he's also assuring Pilate he's done nothing wrong against Rome. He's, he's fighting a different battle. He tells Pilate that, yes, I'm a king, but I'm a king of a kingdom that is not of this world. I am a king of a kingdom that is far greater than you could ever imagine, Pilate. Jesus is the king of God's kingdom. An everlasting king of an everlasting kingdom with all power and all authority in the hands of a good king. And he rules over every little earthly kingdom and every little earthly monarch. There is nothing to him. And as Pilate digs deeper, he finds out that not only is Jesus the, this kind of a king, he's no ordinary king, but he's actually the son of God. It spooks him pretty bad, actually. And so he presses in further and speaks to Jesus and asks him, where are you from? 
in verses 6 and 11 of chapter 19. And Jesus clarifies, I'm from above. I'm from heaven. And the only authority that Pilate has is the very authority that Jesus actually has given him. He's got no authority. He's like, you're not that big of a deal, Pilate. I've got all the authority. Any kind of robe or position you might be enjoying right now, I gave that to you. He is the son and the king, the high king of heaven. And in case Pilate still didn't get it, in case he didn't understand yet what Jesus was saying, Jesus emphatically tells him straight up, what I'm telling you is the truth. It is the truth that I have come into the world, that I am God's son, that I am the way, the truth, and the life, that I am the long-awaited king from heaven. You know, in the court of law, the judge never actually gets into the witness stand and is asked questions. But here, Jesus actually turns the tables and begins to expose Pilate's heart, who's supposed to be doing the judging of Jesus' heart. Jesus actually turns the tables so that Pilate now actually has to start asking himself, which side is he on? Jesus says in verse 37, Everyone who is of the truth, everyone who is on the side of truth, listens to my voice. And he leaves Pilate to, to wonder what side is he on. And that is a good question for us today. What side are you on? Do you believe that Jesus is actually telling the truth here? It's not just saying the words of truth, but that Jesus is the truth. He says that he is this king from heaven who has all authority. He says that he is the son of God. He says that he is God who has become man to make a way to save people, everyone who believes in him as the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. Do you believe him? Do you believe that Jesus is telling the truth? He tells us to believe him. He tells us to listen to his voice because he's telling us the truth. Not only is Jesus the true king of heaven, but he's also the true king of righteousness. He's the true king of righteousness. Even Pilate couldn't deny that Jesus was perfectly righteous and totally guiltless. I mean, three times, did you hear that as we were reading the passage? Three times, Pilate declares that Jesus is innocent. He says in verse 38, I find no guilt in him. And again, in 19 verse 4, Pilate repeats, I'm bringing him out to you. Why? So that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And then again in verse 6, he exclaims, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. This was the same problem the Jewish priests had earlier that morning in trying to find guilt and some dirt on Jesus, and they just couldn't do it. 
Matthew 26 tells of how the chief priests and the whole councils were seeking false testimony against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward. Even Pilate's own wife says to her husband not to condemn Jesus because in her own words, he is a righteous man. Over and over again, everyone who knew Jesus, even his worst enemies, knew that he was guiltless, that he was entirely righteous, sinless. First John 3, 5 says, in him there was, in him there was no sin. First Peter 2 said, he committed no sin Neither was there deceit found in his mouth. In Acts 3, Jesus is called the Holy and Righteous One. And in 1 John, he's called Jesus Christ, the Righteous. Clearly, Jesus is the true, righteous King. Yet despite the fact that Jesus is this righteous King from heaven, he willingly chose to suffer in very earthy ways from very evil people. Look at all the ways, as the passage we were reading, look at all the ways in which this king from heaven, this perfect, guiltless king, chose to suffer. He suffered injustice, this judicial suffering, these Jewish leaders falsely accusing him. Pilate denying him justice, wrongly sentencing him. Capitulating and compromising on truth. Pilate gives in to the murderous demands of the crowd and of the Jewish leaders and of the chief priest. Demanding like a wild riot that, would, that Jesus would be crucified. He says, I find no guilt in him. Crucify him. But he's not guilty. Crucify him. He's your king. Crucify him. He's wild with madness. He suffers under the injustice. You know what it's like when, when you get falsely accused of something. There's something inside of you that, that burns and wells up. You're just, no, that's, that's not true. You, you want to vindicate yourself. And if you can't, you start calculating the ways you can get revenge. And none of this is true of Jesus. He laid all that aside. He just allowed the injustices to roll unchecked. He suffers injustice. But he also suffers politically. He suffers politically. As the king of the universe, he allows himself to really be the offended victim of this political maneuvering by these Jewish rulers who are, are, are such hypocrites. They're liars. They're pretending to you know, speak on behalf of God. We're these Jewish rulers and chief priests. All the while, they're just trying to position themselves to keep their power. To keep their role and position and prestige as these political leaders, these religious leaders in Israel. 
I mean, and Caesar's no better. He, he even recognizes Jesus' innocence. But he completely folds. He buckles under the pressure and compromises on the truth like a spineless coward. Just so he can protect his position and power as governor. He doesn't want to disrupt the Jews so that they cause a riot and Caesar would be upset and removes him, displaces him. No, he wants to keep his position and his little throne there in Palestine. And so he condemns a a guiltless, innocent man. We, We feel just a hint, just a hint of this. When we suffer under the poor decisions of our own politicians, just so that they can keep power for another term, we can sometimes feel what that's like. But we ourselves are guilty of this too, in our own little spheres at home and at work. We can manipulate things or lie, or we can feel this pressure to to throw in the towel or to, to compromise on truth. Even though we know it's not popular, we're, we, we're going to pull back because we don't want to lose our job or we don't want to lose that friendship. We don't want to put strain in that marriage or that family. And so we're like, you know, I'm just going just to make things a lot easier. And we can fold. We're at work. We can manipulate and maneuver and step on people in order to keep our position It's so easy. It's so easy to kind of see ourselves in Pilate and in these priests. Jesus suffered injustice. He suffered politically. But he suffered physically. He had a body. He had a body with with sweat glands and arteries and veins and nerve endings. He he had a body, and and he was exposed. God the Son becoming a man, fully God, fully man. He was exposed to all the different experiences we experience. Everything from sleeplessness and tiredness or thirst or hunger all the way to bruising and beating. That's how chapter 19 opens up. In verse 1, it says that Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. It's such a a simple statement, and yet it's, it's so understated. See, flogging was a calculated way, an invented way by the Romans to maximize the torture of someone, to weaken them and shame them. It was a way the Romans would scourge a criminal that they would consider subhuman. And as one pastor, John MacArthur, describes, the victim was stripped naked, tied to a post, and whipped by several torturers who would use an instrument that had several long strands of leather with sharp bone and clumps of metal interwoven within it so that every strike of the whip would bruise and sometimes crack bones and sink into the flesh and rip it off. So often bones and muscle and organs would be exposed. It was horrific 
There was no limit to how many times a victim would be whipped. The goal of the torturers was to bring someone to the point just above death so that they could still carry a cross, but barely. It wasn't uncommon, therefore, for people after being flogged, never actually getting to crucifixion. They would just die there on the spot. Jesus suffered intense physical pain. He chose it. He chose it. He could have stopped it in a moment. He chose it. But he suffered emotional pain too. We've already described here the process of flogging. You're actually stripped naked publicly. I mean, that is so exposing, so shameful. Whipped publicly as subhuman. Humiliated. But then, verses 2 and 3 go on to say that he's further mocked by these soldiers who take some thorns and twist them into a wreath and jam it on his head. And take his naked body and, and wrap it in this purple robe. Mockingly exclaiming, Hail! King of the Jews, and then slapping him, punching him, striking him, in other gospels, spitting on his face, just humiliated, shamed, mocked. Some of you have been with us for this sermon series and searching for a king. You'll remember in the Old Testament, if someone were to touch the ark of God, the very symbol of God's holy presence, they would die immediately. But here are people coming up to God incarnate, the very holy and righteous presence of God, and striking God in the face again and again and again, and spitting on him. And Jesus doesn't do anything. He lets them live. He could have he wiped them out with a word. But his silence makes a way for eternal life. Shocking. He chose. He chose to do this. He chose to suffer judicially, politically, physically, emotionally. He does this. Because he's got a reason. He's choosing to do this because there's a reason. He's not just showing us that he's a loving God. He's not just making an example for us of this is what sacrificial love looks like. Yes, he's doing that. But he's doing so much more. He's actually accomplishing what he lovingly was sent from heaven to do. Save us. To actually accomplish rescue, to fulfill his mission. But he, I mean, he does it in such an upside-down way. No one maps this out this way. I mean, you kind of think of a king riding in on a horse, slaying his enemies. Jesus trots in on a donkey to save his enemies. This king chooses to become a suffering servant. This lion becomes a lamb. And offers himself to pay a penalty we couldn't pay. So he could give something we could never earn. 
Jesus chooses to do this. And this was his plan all along. I mean, what humility. What a confusing scene. Someone, if, so, if you and I were to look on Jesus, we would, we would say, certainly, certainly we've got the wrong king. I mean, we're, we're pretty sure this was the one. But, I mean, look at him. Look at him. Utterly weak, powerless, bleeding, bruised, on the brink of death. How can this be the king? Even Pilate recognized this a little bit in verse 13 when he mockingly declares, Behold, your king. He, as a governor, had just decimated Jesus to such a degree, he just mocked him. You're barely human. But Jesus, all the while, has infinite power and authority, and he's restraining it all by love. Love is what is causing him to choose to keep going, to permit all of this suffering to happen to him. And surprisingly, this crazy upside-down rescue plan climaxes in Jesus being delivered over to be crucified. Crucifixion was the most shameful, painful way the Romans had to kill someone. It was customary for a person to carry their own cross on their own bloody shoulders to their point or location of crucifixion. This is what Jesus did. It says in the text that he carried his own cross from the city of Jerusalem out of the city up to a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull, or in Latin, Calvary. There Jesus was crucified, laid on these two pieces of wood with six-inch iron spikes driven through his wrists and his ankles, cracking bones, severing nerves, exploding blood vessels, impaled to a wooden cross, making it very, very difficult to breathe. There is actually such incredible pain experienced by someone who was being crucified that the Romans actually came up with a word, a unique word to describe the unique pain. It's excruciating. Excruciating. Pain that's ex from crucifixion. It was horrific. But this wasn't the greatest pain Jesus endured. The greatest suffering that Jesus experienced on this Good Friday was not from the cross. But it was while he was on the cross. It was from his heavenly father dealing with the curse of our sin while he was on the cross. Crucifixion, you see, is a sign of being cursed by God. 
Galatians 3.13 picks this idea up, quoting Deuteronomy 21, saying, For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. This is all a part of God's upside-down rescue plan. He is being cursed, but not because of something he did. He is becoming our substitute, being crowned with our curse, being pierced with the thorns of our sins. He's taking our place on the cross. He's the king of the curse, that he might rescue all of us who are under the curse of our own sin. He takes our place. He switches spots. He exchanges our spot for his so that he might swallow all the wrath of God that we deserved so that we might know the blessing of his righteousness and his salvation that he freely gives. This was his greatest suffering. There was another sign that day, not just this sign of, of the curse of God on Jesus on the cross, but there was another sign above Jesus on the cross that day. It was very typical in Roman law that a criminal who was being crucified would actually carry this sign all the way to their crucifixion spot, and then that sign would then be pinned and nailed above their head on the cross, stating the name of the criminal and the crime for which they are being crucified. And this is the case with Jesus. It's no different from him in verse 19. It says that Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. And it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. But what is very important to see is how it was written. It says that it was written in Aramaic and in Latin and in Greek. Those were three important languages. Aramaic was the local Hebrew language of Jerusalem of the time. So everyone local would know it. Latin was the official language of Rome. And Greek was the international trade language for the whole empire. Basically, anyone in the known world would be able to read that sign and say, here's the king. And that's on purpose. Because God intended that for us to know that Jesus is not only this king from heaven, not only is this, this king who is righteous, but he is also the king who summons and saves the world. He's the one who summons and saves the world. The world, John 3.16, that beautiful verse says that God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. How did Jesus provide this everlasting life, this salvation? 1 Peter 3 says that on the cross Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous For the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. 
2 Corinthians 5 brings out this idea, this exchange, this taking, switching of places. It says, for our sake, he, the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin. Who knew no sin? He was guiltless, remember. God made him sin so that in him, that's Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. He switched it. He exchanged it. Jesus takes our place, this righteous king takes the place of condemned sinners on the cross and becomes our suffering savior. And he does so, so that he can satisfy God's justice against us. Because we're under the curse and condemnation of God. The satisfaction of God's justice is called propitiation. It simply means that God picked up the tab of outstanding sin debt that we all had. And he said, I paid it. I paid it in full. There's nothing left. That's why in 1 John 2, it says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. He satisfied God's justice against our sins. Not just for Jews, but for people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and language. This was the mission that Jesus was accomplishing. You couldn't see it on that day. That Friday when Jesus died, it looked bad, confusing. But Jesus knew this is a good day. I am doing something that I've been wanting to do from all eternity. And satisfying God's wrath on behalf of his people. And he doesn't just save people. He now saves and summons them. He summons them all to come and trust in him. John 12, 32 says, this is what Jesus says. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Jesus is predicting, when I'm lifted up on a Roman cross, I'm going to be drawing, summoning all people to myself, that they may be saved, that they may be reconciled to God. This is what he, would, this is what he said he would do. Back in Isaiah 43, Jesus promised, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Jesus is the true king who saves and summons everyone to come to him for rescue. What do you think? Why do you think you're here today? Do you think you just kind of showed up by accident or was it kind of a fluke or by chance? Or you're just kind of, maybe some of you were kind of coming here against your will, kind of upset that you're kind of here. Maybe some of you were just totally disinterested. You're just trying to appease a family member or a friend. It doesn't matter how you think you got here. Jesus says he drew you here. You're here for a reason that you might see him Lifted up as the true king and only savior. There is no other name under heaven given among man, mankind, 
by which we must be saved. Do you hear his voice today? Do you hear him calling the truth, saying to you, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If so, if you hear his voice, trust in him. Trust in this king. There is no other. There's none like him. Behold this king, so powerful and infinite in power and authority, and yet meek and gentle, able to lift up the most downcast, to to wash the vilest offender, to, to bring back the furthest outcast. Jesus can do all of this for you right now. If you trust in him, all you have to do is to look and live, to behold the king with faith, and he will save you. And if, beloved, you are already trusting in this king, if, if he is the one that you see, this king from heaven, this righteous, good king who has saved you and summoned you by faith, then Jesus calls you and me in Hebrews 12 to keep looking to him in faith. It says, to keep looking to him, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He calls us to keep looking to him with eyes of faith, seeing him for who he really is, remembering how he secured and accomplished our salvation. And one of the ways we do this, the way we keep looking with faith to our great king is remembering how our king accomplished our salvation through communion. Through this meal, this this ordinance, this way in which Jesus in his kindness has given us such tangible ways to remember these symbols that point to the cross. That point to what he did at Calvary. This We're going to be taking some bread. This bread, the Bible says, points to his body. The very real, literal body of Jesus that carried our real, cursed sins. And the juice, the the juice that points to the real red blood of Jesus that really, literally washed away our real, true, literal sins. These symbols, the bread and the juice that we'll be taking, they're not what saves you. They're like signposts, symbols that point you to Jesus who saves you. And so everyone who is trusting in Jesus this morning, saying, he's my king. I'm trusting in this king, this heavenly righteous king who chose to suffer so perfectly and completely for me to accomplish the mission of rescuing me. I believe that today. Then this is for you. This this communion, this meal of fellowshipping with him, it's for you. It's for you. Just take a pair of cups. They're stacked. And we're encouraging you just to hold it and use this time to reflect on the way that Jesus has saved you. 
If you're not there yet, if you have not put your faith and trust in this king, then we just encourage you to let the tray pass. And then come and talk to anyone that you see here serving today. We would love to tell you how Christ can become your king. Lord, I'm going to invite the ushers to come now and distribute the elements. And I'm just going to encourage us to take this time to really reflect on Jesus, this great, astounding king, being so compelled by love that he would suffer for you and for me. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness. You are good. You are good. You're so good, it, it surprises us. It can kind of confuse us of how you accomplish the greatest good for us. No, would have, no one would have mapped it out like this. No king would have plotted and strategized that kind of a rescue plan. Being utterly humiliated, being decimated physically, emotionally, judicially, all the while, never losing control, having all authority, laying your life down in love. Thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.